Have you ever been in a situation where you know you're right? You know you have the truth on your side, but yet people won't listen. People will not look at you, assess you honestly, and maybe their goal and intent is to destroy you. Well, of course, we're not really under much persecution in this world in which we live. And it's fairly easy to at least present the gospel, maybe a little ridicule here or there. But the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians is defending his authority. He's defending his apostleship. Now, that may seem so bizarre to us. We think of the Apostle Paul as being the great man that is willing to risk life and limb and to go into all of the world and preach the gospel. And even the signs of an apostle he wrought among the churches that he developed. And yet, apparently, there were some who did not like Paul and wanted to discredit his ministry. Well, we sometimes call these folks, or at least a portion of these folks, the Judaizers. There may have been other groups that perhaps wanted to discredit Paul out of jealousy or whatever reason. But in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul sets about to confirm his authority in the Lord. Now, one of the things that got Paul in trouble was, of course, he preached the abolition of the old law. There were those in that day who wanted to hang on to the Jewish uh, ideals of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And so Paul comes along, and of course he's teaching freedom in Christ. And he begins then to teach people that they're no longer under the Old Law, and that in reality the law had faded, and now a much glorious and much more radiant uh, law and much more radiant system had been brought forth. We're going to entitle our study this evening, Lifting the Veil. And no, we're not talking about marriage. I know some of you in the audience are engaged. We're not going to be talking about marriage. That's another topic for another time. But we're going to talk about the illustration that Paul gives in this third chapter. Now, I have to admit, this chapter is not very long. But it is woven in such a way that for me, being as linear as sometimes I am, I have trouble following it. And so what I want to do this evening is just with you go verse by verse primarily through this chapter, make some comments, and then perhaps we'll have some great discussion at the end. Now as I mentioned, Paul is defending his authority. Some of course accused him of preaching for profit. Some of course accused him of being weak and inferior to the other apostles because he had not seen the risen Lord, at least not during his ministry. Now, on the road to Damascus, of course he did. But some accused Paul of being inferior. Some were constantly dogging Paul. And it seemed like everywhere Paul would go, here came the entourage of Judaizers or those naysayers who would then try to destroy him in the eyes of those with whom he worked. And so that's kind of the broad context of 2 Corinthians. Now, the immediate context that we're going to be looking at primarily tonight, found in chapter 3, is that Paul is going to contrast the Old Covenant, which of course he is saying we're not under, and that of the New Covenant, which he is now teaching unashamedly. And he's going to show how that the radiance of the New Covenant overpowers, overpowers the glory, yes, glory, but, but the failing glory, the fading glory of the Old Law. Now, of course, here's the outline of the chapter primarily. We have Paul dealing with the Corinthian church and his credentials. We have the apostles who Paul says are adequate for the ministry of the new covenant. 
God had given them everything they needed to be able to present the truth, the new covenant then is going to be shown to be superior to the old covenant. And then, of course, he's going to use this illustration from the Old Testament of the veil. The veil that was over Moses' face when he would deliver the law and how that veil was a symbol of, shall we say, in Paul's day, ignorance that still veiled the people that would listen to the preaching. Now, verse 1, Paul says this, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Do we commend ourselves or do we need as others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Now, of course, they knew who Paul was. Paul's words had gone far and wide. But he's saying in a rhetorical way, do we need other proof about who we are? Now apparently that was a custom in that day among some to carry or to be sent with letters that could vouch for who they were in the Lord. In fact, we have a clue of this in Acts chapter 18, where there the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive those who were going out. And so it was indeed apparently a practice that some going from point A to point B, you didn't go on the phone or the text and say, hey, we've got a brother coming, you send a letter. And of course, even in the modern era, I have heard of that happening even in Europe at times in the past. But nonetheless, Paul says, do we really need to have this for you to know that we are authentic apostles? And then he says, you, you Corinthians are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Paul's ministry to the Corinthians apparently had preceded himself. In other words, others around the world, around the Roman world, knew about what Paul was doing in Corinth. Corinth was a wicked city, and the gospel was shown to have power because Paul had got there and people had been converted out of the most uh, dire paganism that you can imagine. So Paul says, do we really need these credentials? Isn't your conversion enough to prove who we are? And then he says, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not in ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh that is the heart. Now with this verse, we begin to see a little bit of a transition and a little bit of a hint as to what Paul will eventually end up talking about in his contrast of the Old and the New Covenants. But first of all, he says that what he had ministered was written on tables, tablets of flesh. In other words, God's people had internalized God's Word. And this is what you know, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 had hinted at when he said that God would write His law on people's minds and upon their hearts. Now the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, the Decalogue, had been on tablets of stone. But now God is utilizing a different medium. And of course, it's not something that, that was written with ink, not a literal or a physical letter that was written upon an individual, but it was through the Spirit of God that, that Paul says this message was imprinted in their lives, and then would radiate out to others. Verse 4 and 5, Paul says, And we have such confidence through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves. Paul took no credit, no glory. He says to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency rather is from God. You know, Paul, one might say, was very confident. But he was also very humble. Paul did not take, the, uh, he did not take the, the credit for what he did. He gave it to the Lord because he says, in reality, it is the Lord who is allowing me to accomplish 
these things. In Philippians 4, he could say, you know, all of our strength comes from Christ. And of course, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he will talk about the apostles and how God placed in earthen treasure, or earthen vessels rather, the treasure of the gospel. Verse 6, he says, We who also made us, speaking of God, sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. So Paul again is reiterating what he said. You know, Paul was a man of God. Paul was a man who had a message from God. He had a mission from God. His methods were godly. Indeed, Paul was well qualified for his, for his work among the Corinthians. Well, unlike the Judaizers, though, who more than likely formulated their own systems and more than likely abused and used wrongly the old law. And of course, in Timothy and Titus, you'll find Paul warning those young evangelists of those who did not use the law properly. Paul utilized the law as it was intended. Now, in the rest of this chapter, we're going to find some contrasts. Now, Dungan said this is the most perfect antithesis to be found in the whole Bible. Now, here is where it gets a little bit tricky, because Paul is going to give four great contrasts, but I'll get ahead of myself just a moment and say that these contrasts, as we'll notice in a moment, are under the greater umbrella or the auspices of the distinction between the old law and the new law. So what I want to do is I want us to read verses 6 through 11, a rather lengthy reading, and then we'll go back and kind of unpack the contrasts that Paul is giving. He says, "...who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit." So here's your first contrast, your letter and your spirit. He says, "...for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious..." so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in respect because of the glory that excels." For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Now here we have, under the umbrella of the Old and the New Covenant, four ways that Paul demonstrates the superiority of the New Covenant and Jesus Christ from the Old Covenant. He contrasts the letter and the Spirit. We'll talk about that in a moment. He contrasts the death that the Old Covenant brought and the life that is now found in Jesus Christ. He's going to contrast the fading glory of the Old Covenant and use Moses as an example. And then he's going to say, but we are in the full glory, the full radiance of the New Covenant. And then he's going to finish up by talking about the condemnation that the Old Law brought, or that Law brought for that matter, and how that, of course, in Jesus Christ, we have true righteousness. So, without a clear grasp, of these concepts, and I think this little umbrella illustration may help us, I think we're doomed to maybe not see the import of this section of Scripture. So here we have it again. Letter versus spirit, death versus life, fading glory versus full glory, and condemnation versus righteousness. Now I think what we will see is that all of these things are really in reality on one side or the other, simply a way of illustrating that larger picture of the old versus 
the new. Well, let's talk about these. First of all, the old versus the new. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on this because we understand that the old covenant given to the nation of Israel, of course, was nailed to the cross, so on and so forth, and that we are not under that covenant. But nonetheless, the people of Paul's day didn't quite grasp that concept. You know, Paul was a minister of the new covenant. The Judaizers were trying to appendage, at least, the old covenant onto the new. But you know, the Mosaic system was never designed to be permanent. It was designed to lead us to Christ. It was designed to find its true fulfillment in the Messiah, Jesus. And so, Jeremiah 31, he could say, the days are coming when there's going to be a new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. So that was portended, that was promised in the Old Testament. Now we get into something a little more difficult here where Paul talks about the letter and the Spirit. He says, not of the letter, he says, but of the Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about the killing and the life of this, this concept. But let's just focus, first of all, on when he, this phrase, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now, I have to admit to you, that is a very difficult phrase because of the nuances of the word Spirit. But now, again, remember the umbrella under which we are working. Remember the umbrella uh, under the Old and the New Covenant. And again, the letter and the Spirit, I think, are just other ways of saying basically the Old and the New. Now, what is the letter? Well, the, in this case, I believe the letter is the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was administered by way of Moses via angels. It was uh, filled with fleshly ordinances, the blood of bulls and goats. And of course, it was doomed for failure in the sense that the blood of the goats and bulls could never take away sin. So it was a letter, as it were, or a word, if you will. And by the way, the Ten Commandments are signified that way, the Decalogue on the tablets. But nonetheless, it was a letter that brought condemnation. Now, what about the Spirit? Well, when we look at this word Spirit, I think we have to decide and be a little careful that we don't just automatically say, well, it's the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, that plays a role. But what about this word spirit? Well, when I see this contrast between letter and spirit, I see a contrast between the old and the new, and I see all of the things that are spiritual under the new as brought about by the ministry of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. So if it looks like I'm sort of mixing concepts, I guess I am, because I don't think you can necessarily separate all of these things out because I believe that it's part and parcel with the greater picture that Paul is painting. You know, the New Testament was administered by Christ. And of course, He sent the Holy Spirit to guide the apostles into all truth. It is filled with spiritual ordinances. Sure, there are physical things we do. But they have a much deeper, richer meaning to us because of their fulfillment and their reality in Christ. They are given life, if you will, by Jesus Christ. Now, whatever Paul means, here are some things that I think Paul does not mean when he contrasts letter and spirit. There have been a lot of ideas as to maybe what Paul means, and uh, I think these things certainly are worth, uh, worth looking at. First of all, I don't believe that Paul is contrasting what the law says versus what it means. I don't believe that Paul is saying, now listen, you know, the old law said something, but that's not what it really meant. He's also not contrasting objectivity with subjectivity. Now, there would be some who would use this verse to say, well, you know, in reality, what we're looking for is the deeper meaning of the law, but we really don't have to obey it. Well, that's not what Paul's argument is at all. And he is not contrasting obedience with laxity. 
God has never minimized obedience. But Paul is saying, listen, there is a depth here and a contrast between the letter and the Spirit. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Well, what are letters? Well, letters, of course, are that which literally make up an alphabet or make up words. And letters have no life or no real essence in and of themselves. They are conveyors, though, when used in the right way, of that which is deeper and real. So the letter then, or the Old Testament in this case, was a physical system. It had ordinances, and only when looked at in relationship to Christ could this really have the full life breathed into it. Without the word, the incarnate logos, the letters simply spelled death because they condemned. They were that which laid out that which mankind never did or could actually obey. Now, I think what we have here, and uh, I will defer to Dr. Griffin here about this concept of the Spirit. But, you know, I think that sometimes in the inspiration of Scripture, we have purposeful ambiguity. Now, maybe this is wrong, but that's, a, that's kind of a conclusion I've come to over the years. And in, the, in this case, I think it's a perfect ambiguity. You know, when we look at the word spirit in the Greek and also, by the way, in the Hebrew, it can have a variety of nuances. It can mean breath. It can mean spirit, as in Holy Spirit. It can mean, uh, you know, just the spirit of man. It can mean the life principle. Now, I don't think we can necessarily negate any of those ideas when we think about the spirit in relationship to the new covenant. It is indeed that which is God-breathed. It is indeed that which is enlivened by Jesus Christ. It has a life principle. The seed is the Word of God. There is, of course, the Holy Spirit connection in that the Spirit was that which guided the apostles into all truth. And so to me, when Paul talks about the letter and the Spirit, he's not just only talking about the Holy Spirit, although I think that's included, but there seems to be a purposeful and perfect ambiguity in usage of that word. Now, perhaps we can talk about that. Well, next the illustration goes to death versus life. Two things Paul contrasts. One law brought death. The other brought law brought life. So how is this then uh, that this happens? Well, let's think about this. Paul says in verse 6, the latter part, he says, Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So we have to discern how does the letter kill, or how does the old law kill? Why is it administration of death? And then how does the new, through the Spirit, give life? Now some have seen a connection here with even the old law and what happened at Sinai when uh, Aaron led the children of Israel in rebellion by building the golden calf. That may be in the backdrop here. I don't see it directly, perhaps indirectly. But nonetheless, how is it that the law kills? Well, you know, Reese says this in his commentary. He says, The law gives the devil a place to launch operations against men. Now, of course, this is a great discussion. Alan's here. He could deal with this much more proficiently. But when you're talking about the law concept, whether you're talking about the Old Testament or just the law concept in general, law by its very nature condemns. That is what it does the best. And so then Paul could write things like this in Romans 7. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. 
He goes on in other places to talk about how he would not have known what sin really was had the law not condemned it. And so the letter, the old covenant, with its ordinances and with its laws indicated just how sinful we are. But then what about the Spirit? How does the Spirit give life? Well, again, if we think of this as not just the Holy Spirit, but we think of it as the spiritual, uh, shall we say, the spiritual environment of the new covenant, including Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and all that pertains to it, then we see true life that that comes to us, rather, through the new covenant. It is through the newness of the new law and the new relationship we have with Jesus Christ that we have salvation. The old law could not do that. But Jesus Christ giving true life to His uh, his new covenant brings that salvation. Paul in Romans 8, 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, in the next section, Paul will begin to talk about the glory, the passing glory of the old covenant and the exceeding glory of the new. And to do this, he will illustrate by taking us back to the Old Testament where Moses goes on Mount Sinai, he gets the law, he comes down, he has been in the presence of God, and of course, he is radiant and it scares the people to death. But let's not get ahead of ourselves too far. Verses 7 and 8, he says, But if the ministry of death, written and engraven on stones, now that's obviously the old law here, that's obviously the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, he says, if that was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing. Remember, Moses would come down, and he would have talked with God, and for a time he would be radiant till, as it were, that dissipated. He said, yes, that was glory. That was glorious, but it was passing. He says, but if the old law could do that, Then how much more glorious is the new law, he says, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be much more glorious? So Paul is contrasting the old and the radiance of it with the super radiance of Jesus Christ and His ministry. Now the passages in question, again, which we've already sort of summed up, are in Exodus 24. Now it's interesting because I have read Exodus 24 through the years and really not, I think, fully grasped the intent of this chapter. Because I always imagined that Moses went up, he came down radiant, it scared the people to death, and they said, Moses, you got to put a veil on because we don't want to look at you anymore. You're scary. But, you know, really, in reality, Paul interprets this quite a different way. Now, that very well may, very well may have been true. We do know that the people were afraid to come near him. The text says that. But it seems that the reason Moses put on a veil was because after Moses had talked with God and then come and re- came and relayed that to the people, that radiance was beginning to falter. Over time, that radiance began to fail. And so then, to put a veil on would then hide that this faltering radiance was happening. Well, if you compare that with the old law then, in reality, uh, you know, Paul is going to use this illustration to show that Moses veils himself so that the Jews of that day would not see the passing glory of the Old Covenant. Now, why why would he do that? Well, maybe that would lead them to rebellion. Or maybe that would lead them to think, well, this is not really as great as it seems to be because it's passing. But nonetheless, 
uh, Paul will go on and say, you know, sometimes today, in his day, people still had this veil on their hearts, and they couldn't see that the old law was passing in glory, and so they wanted to hang on to it just as long as they could. Well, again, contextually, you might get the impression that it is Moses' exceeding radiance that's the problem. Well, it was a problem to some degree. But Paul interprets this to mean Moses, uh, what happens is Moses' receding radiance is the issue. Moses is receding in that glow, that afterglow that he picks up from being in the presence of the Lord. Now, the fading glory, as I mentioned, of Moses was a portend of the fading glory of the Old Covenant. Verse 13 later will say this, Moses, who put a veil over his face, so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing. So Moses puts a veil of his face so the people could not see that the, that, that the glory was passing away. Now, we may talk about that in a moment. But let's move on to this fourth uh, illustration. Paul is now going to use the illustration of condemnation versus righteousness. Now remember, we're all under still the umbrella of the contrast between the old and the new. We have the letter versus the spirit. We have the death versus life. We have fading glory versus full glory. And now we've got condemnation versus righteousness. Now we've already dealt with this concept a little bit. And by the way, that's kind of one of the reasons that I think 2 Corinthians 3 is a little hard to follow. Because Paul is not overly linear sometimes in these concepts. He doesn't deal with just one and then move on very cleanly to the next. He weaves them together. But here's what he says in verse 9. He says, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory. Now, this is very much like what he's already said. The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. In other words, comparatively speaking, when you take the old and the new, there is absolutely no comparison. He says, for if what is passing away had glory or was glorious... What remains is much more glorious. So he's just giving an antithesis here of the glory of the old versus the new. There is no, uh, there's no comparability, really. The new far outshines the old. Now, why was the old the ministry of condemnation? Well, that's a whole study in and of itself. But it speaks, the old spake to the struggle to meet the righteous demands of the law. Now, there was nothing wrong with the law. It was a law that was good, but the people were the problem. And men struggled with the righteous demands of the law. So Paul calls it the ministry of condemnation. And then he uses the new covenant and he calls it the ministry of righteousness. Why? Because true righteousness, true justification is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is what man had longed for and needed to find hope and to find salvation. Well, Paul says because of this and because of our preaching, we do have hope. He says the new brings hope through Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. In other words, we come right out and say what we mean. We don't put veils over it. We don't put muffles on it. He says, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not steadily uh, look at the end of what was passing away. So Paul is just saying, in comparison to what Moses did, we're just right out there in front 
teaching exactly what God wants us to know because we're not trying to uh, hide, if you will, or we're not trying to veil any of this message. Now, the apostles did not veil the truth, did they? They did not veil their message. It, of course, he says later on, if it was veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Because those who uh, you know, won't see, there's none so blind as he who will not see, we might say. But Moses' fading glory was much different. Christ increased in glory. The new covenant increases. And even today, the more we learn about the new covenant, doesn't it even seem more glorious than what it did when we first were baptized, let's say? There is an exceeding glory in the new covenant. Now, Paul now begins to talk about those who would not see. The willful blindness of maybe the Judaizers or maybe the nation of Israel. You know, I'm reminded of Romans chapter 10, verses 1, where Paul says that, you know, they're ignorant of God's righteousness and have gone about to settle, set their own righteousness, and in such they've not submitted to the righteousness of God. There was a willing blindness, it seems, by some of that day to see what? To see that Jesus was the fulfillment of the old law. He says this in verse 14 and 15. He says, But their minds, that is the dissenters or the Judaizers, minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Now, of course, he goes from what the Jews of that ancient time felt and did to the folks of his day. Even to this day, he says, there are those who don't see the fading glory of the old law. They think it's going to be around forever. They want to hold on to it. They think it is what God had set in stone, literally, to be of all time. The fading nature was something that they didn't understand. Of course, we understand, looking back and looking through the lens of Jesus. He is the one who fulfilled and the one who uh, really is the, the center point of even the law of Moses. That really, that law brought us to Christ. It was, as Paul said in Galatians, the tutor to bring us to Christ so that we could be justified by faith. Now, some of those Jews sat in the synagogue. They heard the Torah reading of the Scriptures. But all they saw was that this was a law of Moses. They didn't or couldn't see ahead and say, you know, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus was rejected even in his own day, and Paul's message likewise. So Jesus is the cure, Paul is going to say, for blindness. He's going to say that when we come to Christ, when we turn to the Lord, we are going to have this veil lifted we're going to see clearly what Jesus is in relationship to the old and how the new then is what we live under. Now, you know, there's this phrase, and I think it's attributed to Anselm of, uh, Anselm of Canterbury. I believe that I may understand. Augustine also had a similar phrase. But, you know, it's not that our faith is blind. It's not that we just believe anything. But it is that our faith has to be honed by the lens of Jesus Christ. You know, the other day I went to the eye doctor, and they wanted to just do a general test. hadn't been in a long time. And I could read a good number of those letters on the eye chart. But, you know, when she put the lens on my face and did the calculations, I had 20-20 vision. You see, 
That is what Jesus does. When we look at the old through the lens of Jesus, we see much more than what you know, we would just see if we read it as maybe an ancient Jew or one without faith, let's say. John Calvin said this. He said, The veil signified the darkness of that dispensation. The ceremonial institutions had in them much of Christ and the gospel, but a veil was drawn over it so that the children of Israel could not distinctly and steadfastly see those good things to come which the law was a shadow of. He says it was beauty veiled, gold in the mind, a pearl in the shell. But thanks be to God by the gospel, the veil is taken away from the, off the Old Testament, yet it still remains upon the hearts of those who shut their eyes against the light. Well, of course, that's one statement of Calvin I agree with. I think we see here Calvin beautifully saying, listen, these are nuggets, rich nuggets of gold in the Old Testament. Ron Corder said years ago, the reason we don't understand the new is because we don't understand the old. And I think that's probably true. Well, Jesus, of course, brings through the new covenant life and liberty. The old covenant is that which is done away. It brought death and it brought condemnation. We are now in a new covenant. Now, we have a tricky verse, verse 17. Paul says, now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, that's an interesting verse. So how are we to interpret that verse? Well, I believe that we need to plug it back into that chart we had earlier. Christ is the spiritual, He's not the Holy Spirit. Obviously, there's the, the Godhead. But Christ is the spiritual fulfillment and essence of the law. Now, if we look at verses 7 through 16, so when you look at your Bible, just kind of take 7 through 16 and think of it as a parenthetical. Think of it as a, sort of a, a little rabbit trail that Paul goes off on just for a moment. And Paul does that, it seems, quite a few times in his writings. So if you look at that as a parenthetical, here's what you end up with. So we'll start in verse, chapter 3, verse 6, and then we'll go to verse 17, with that other being seen as a parenthetical. He says, "...who also made us," speaking of the apostles, "...as sufficient ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life." Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, again, I don't believe that Paul is saying that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. He's simply saying, I believe, that the Lord is the spiritual enlightenment of that which uh, brings full meaning to what was said in the Old Testament. In other words, because of Jesus, we can see more than a roasted lamb in the words, a bone of him shall not be broken. We can see more than bulls and goats on the altar. We can also see the internal sacrifice of Jesus. We can see more than Aaron in his priestly garments. We can see Christ, our high priest, who has passed through the heavens. We no longer just see literal circumcision, but we also see the circumcision of our hearts. You see, the old points toward the new. The old did not bring true liberty. The new does. It brings liberty from sin, from condemnation, from the ritualism that perhaps could be, uh, you know, uh, dead. It brings uh, liberty from doubt. It brings liberty from the imperfection of sacrifice because Jesus paid it all. It brings us liberty in the new covenant. 
It also brings us illumination. And that was the problem. Paul was dealing with folks who didn't want to see Christ as the light of the world. He was dealing with folks who wanted to look at the old law as being the light, the candle. And Paul says, no, no. It is simply that which leads us down the dark path toward the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in verse 18, he says, but we all, and I think he's here probably talking about the apostles themselves. He says, but we all with unveiled face, face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just, by, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what's Paul saying? Well, I believe that in general, what Paul is saying as he contrasts the old and the new, is that the new covenant has this transforming glory. In Jesus Christ, we see the newness. We see the fulfillment. We see the perfection of what Paul was preaching. And so then, those Judaizers, those who were trying to discredit Paul, did not understand. Or if they did, they didn't admit that what Paul had was a diamond. What Paul was teaching were pearls of truth that could have totally changed their life and totally taken the veil off of their hearts. Those are my thoughts.